Welcome, sitting dockside, Troy and Matt. And today it's all about feast and famine, floods and droughts. People out there are either it seems like they're getting rain or they're not, Troy. Yep, yep, yep. And listen, this is uh this is sitting dockside, which is brought to you by the parent nonprofit PWNRA.org, Private Waters Natural Resource Association. There is also the Facebook page, Lake and Pond Management Questions, Content, and Community. I think we're getting close to 20,000 members now, Matt, uh, which makes moderation and admin difficult, but we love it. Y'all keep on coming. That's right. A lot of great questions, a lot of great content on that Facebook page. And this is where we get most of our content for these podcasts. And people are posting, hey, man, I'm I'm in a drought. What do I do? Are these plants taking more water I need to you know, what preparations do I need to do? And then the same thing is I have 12, 14 inches last night. Oh my gosh. Uh, is there anything that I need to be looking for and doing? So this is, we're going to address this today and hope you get a lot out of it. Very timely. Well, we're your hosts, Matt Rail and my Tennessee buddy, Troy Goldsby. Together, we have been working with lakes and ponds for over 40 years. And during that time, we have picked up on a ton of tips and tricks from lake owners and experts from all over the country. So if you want to learn how to catch some smiles from your kids or grandkids on your lake, or learn how to grow some memories on your pond, then come sit with us on Sitting Dockside. Troy, you ready for another Sitting Dockside? I got it. It's early in the morning, but let's let's roll. Yeah, we got our little cups of coffee. Drink in here. You know what kind of coffee? You know what kind of coffee I drink? Oh no! Here we go. It's called it's called bulletproof coffee, and it's delicious. <laughs> it's my regular cured coffee, and then I mix up milk and coconut oil and cinnamon and sugar, uh, and blend that all together, and it is a delicious morning treat that helps you if you do intermittent fasting, which I do. Uh, it that little bit of uh, coconut oil provides you enough fat to get you through the morning. Mm-hmm. And yes, bougie. There's so bougie. many. Uh, yeah, and helps you part your hair. And and it's a it's a it's a natural accident to be honest with you, Matt. Uh, <laughs> if you need to be regular, try bulletproof golf. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, welcome to another city dockside with Matt and Troy here from PWNRA, Private Water Natural Resource Association. And today we're going to talk a little bit and a little bit more about two things that we see pond owners dealing with right now. It's either you have it or you don't, and that's rain. That's right. Seems like it just doesn't rain anymore. It either floods or you don't get any at all and things are drying up. But uh, a lot of pond owners are really dealing with this and it's, it's kind of a uh, interesting scenario. What happens to your pond during a drought? What do you expect to see during a drought? What can you do during a drought and what can you prepare for and what you can expect with in a flood? So Troy, are you dry down there? Uh, in, in a one-mile radius of my home, it's very dry. Um, north of me towards Nashville, Murray County, up in that area, uh, they've had quite a bit of rain, actually. It's not like flooding rain, so ponds are still pretty low. we got such a drought type of scenario back uh, late May and through June that uh, they're still low, but we're getting enough rain to um, – at least keep the water disturbed, I guess, and, and keep crops growing at this point. So, we, as a, uh, I talked to a farmer yesterday, and he's like, it's all about time drains. It's not about abundance right now. So, they're getting just a little sprinkle every three or four days. Yeah. But the ponds are really going down. Um, I know some friends in Texas that are just really struggling. Depends on where you're in Texas. And, and we got, you know, Louisiana just got a ton of rain. What is it? Dallas has got a ton of rain. I think that whole corridor from, 
Dallas over to Shreveport, all through North Louisiana. Looks like they got a bunch right through Jackson, Mississippi. That kind of whole corridor of the central southeast, right. I guess. Right. <clears throat> so, a little bit about pond construction. One is if you have a, let's say you have a dam on your pond. Usually, you dammed up a holler, and you are basically looking at the amount of flow coming in your pond. And if it doesn't rain, you don't have the water. Water's not coming through the watershed. So you just don't have the inputs of water. It'll hold for a little bit over a reservoir, but as this time duration and heat index increases, then basically that water starts to go down. And I'll tell you one thing that a lot of people miss during these times. A lot of times it's already too late before it's, before the water is so low, I should say, that, oh, my goodness, what do I need to do? Um, the question I ask, get asked a lot is, what about these trees around the edges? Are they sucking out a lot of water? And uh, it is pretty staggering. Like, for instance, a cattail patch uh, or a willow patch or cottonwood are the three uh, trees, the amount of moisture that they actually release and suck out of your pond is pretty staggering. Um, the I've heard some numbers of almost, you know, uh, hundreds of gallons a day off one cottonwood being released. Yeah, evapo, it's evapotranspiration. You know, it's it's uh, it's pretty staggering. Um, the the willow you're talking about is Salix nigra, black willow, is the most common one around pods. And, you know, we just see that what happens is you start losing water to evaporation uh, or evapotranspiration too. And then, you know, it just seems to get worse and worse. Like if you're, if you're thinking you're going to lose a quarter of an inch a day, when the groundwater uh, and the water table have dropped, it seems like it really ramps up and you pick up and lose more than that when you get into significant droughts. And it's hard to keep up with. Even if at times, if you have a whale that you're utilizing to keep your lake full and you've you've sized it to be a certain amount of water based on that pod. It seems like when you get to these significant droughts, that doesn't even keep up with with the amount of water that you're losing. So it's a um, it's a significant issue. Um, I'm kind of a silver lining guy sometimes, though. So we'll talk about that as we keep going. Right. So those are the three trees that I really don't like anyway around ponds because one, the black will willow doesn't ever grow up like a tree it just grows up like a bush the cattail like is yep goes like a pretty prolific cottonwood i can tolerate but it seems like it seeds out everywhere and you always are picking up saplings every other year um along yeah. the pond's edge and it just wants to colonize everything i've seen one uh i was at a um big lake in in central indiana and they it was just timed right and the, all the cottonwoods he got pushed to the edge and there was cottonwood trees every every inch all along the edge where the water had pushed all the seed to one edge and went down a little bit and just deposited perfectly and That's so funny. cottonwoods are one, one of those things that that i don't really love in, on that scenario so pre preparation for a drought by removing these another reason i don't like them is because i use the saying is i want to tell the pond where I want to fish, I don't want to go where it allows me to fish, you know? And, and so I like to have control along that shoreline anyway. So I plant a little more beneficial plants along that edge and then get rid of these guys. And aesthetically, I think it looks a lot, a lot well, better. And you and can actually not, access your pond. There's people that will probably take umbrage with you in terms of the cattails I, I like how a cattail looks but it's not a very good it doesn't provide good habitat uh, that's true yeah. i mean they they and you can keep them under control but they people are like well, well it's natural it's good habitat it's not really good habitat for fish I, I, I it's just it's just a very dense it's just a very dense plant at the base i just don't see i mean if you like it you can have it but you know it does it does create some issues like matt's saying and, um, it's one of those I just don't really prefer. Yep, and it and it does suck some water like crazy compared to it does. Those, you know, it does. Uh, so if you're dealing with droughts or you're getting less than you know thirty inches of rain per year, 
uh, or even 40. Cattails probably aren't the choice along the edge. Nope. That, the, uh, so that's one thing in preparation you can do on a drought. Also, when you when we're talking the scenario now, we're in the hot of the summer. The water's starting to go down. And you ever hear of the uh, Great Salt Lake? Troy, I'm sure you, you've, you've been there, right? And the, reason it's, and the reason it's salty is because of why? I don't know. I guess I guess the soil I guess, I, the soil I guess the soil has salt in it. No, it's because the water comes out of the hill, piles down on this lake, and actually the Great Salt Lake has zero outlets. Do you know that? It can't it does not leak. I did know that, yes. And so even though the salinity off this hill is very low, you know, in parts per thousand over millions of years or thousands of years or whatever you think is dead drop comes down this hill and then evaporates and then deposits is what's left of salt. See, I was right. It is from the soil, but it's from the mountain, not the soil in the lake. It's from the soil <laughs> in the mountain that's salt. That's right. I knew I was, I knew I was so, right somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on how you look at it, right? So on a lake also, Let's just say your lake, how does the Great Salt Lake have to have to compare with my lake? Well, is now you, let's just say you lose a third of your volume. You did not lose the third of your phosphorus. You did not lose a third of your nitrogen. Well, the nitrogen is a little bit yeah, different. Nude of your salts and your, and your, uh, uh, of that and your, and your calcium and, and all of those scenarios. So the water quality, water quality during these drought events is much different than when you have high, high table. And so things can grow differently when you concentrate a lot of your nutrients. For instance, what you associate with drought and heat is, you know, HABs, uh, blue-green algaes. They're sure. notorious. They are made for drought conditions because they also, which I'll lead to next, they love it when you're when phosphorus is not limited anymore. And then they also love it when you bring the heat because they they love hot water and they grow very well comparatively to its competitor, the green algae or plant just, or well, and- algae. So Matt used the term HAB, and just for anybody that doesn't understand what an HAB is, it's a harmful algal bloom that is typically comprised of cyanobacteria or blue-green algae. So, thanks, Joy. Yeah, the uh, yeah. So a lot of times in August, September, where you're at, doesn't um, we're getting a lot more posts on the Facebook page of Hey, what's this film? What's this? stuff on the top of the water and it is a bloom kicking off because the conditions are getting more and more and more right and perfect for this particular type of algae to grow during these hot dry hot dry months into which we are in exactly right now shrug you want to add you want me to keep going uh it's it's just so interesting to hear you talk, Matt. I mean, I just find myself fascinated. So, no, I can't I can't add anything to that. Uh, now, I'll say this: there are ways that you obviously, and we talk about this pretty often. There are ways that you can curb the uh, the impacts of a drought. Um, proper aeration uh, is one of those. Um, you know, in, anything that we talk about that improves water quality in. Uh, well, Matt's saying that when things are compound, when when water is low, then the bad things are compounded too. But the things that you do to improve water quality are also compounded. So you can you can still fight the situation uh, with proper um, proper aeration That's right. and nutrient and nutrient abatement. Yep, nutrient abatement. Actually, going after the phosphorus, you're concentrating it, and and there is now tools that are very safe. Um, that we can utilize it to just go after phosphorus. And right. uh, 
you know, during these times may not be the best time to go <coughs> after him. Sometimes spring and fall is for multiple different reasons. We're, we're not going to go into, but the, uh, but it is something to prepare for as, as things move forward, knowing that if you are going into, and you're very de- dependent on the watershed or the water table and your pond's going to be going up and down. So you may be wanting to prepare for this high concentration of, of nutrients. So moving on benefits of droughts benefits of droughts if you're gonna as a if you if you just want to look at a silver lining scenario if you have a drought condition and you have exposed bottom it's a really really good time to potentially depending on permitting laws do some sediment removal uh, in those exposed areas Uh, add habitat that maybe you wish you had added uh, before the lake was filled Uh, and sometimes um, there are some fisheries practices that do like um, drawdowns every three to five years, whether you are doing, uh, whether it's from a drought or uh, you are forcing the drawdown. And that concentrated population of, of forage fish allows your bass to forage very, very heavily when you shrink the impoundment. So you could look at the, the fact that, all right, well, maybe my water's a little bit low. Uh, but I've got some exposed areas. I'd like to add some habitat. Oh, and by the way, my predator fish are just crushing uh, the forage base right now because they're, um, you know, they're in a much tighter spot. So you can actually see an increase in the relative health of your uh, predator species during uh, during drought times. That's right. The yeah, as long as the pool doesn't get too low, and it's a stress event then basically what it does just like your concentration of 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 nutrients that we were just talking about increases well the bait fish don't have any place to go so they're basically brought into this lower pool um and it's just fish are everywhere and and so hunting and striking a lot of these forage based fish are really really easy so you can actually get fish to increase weight during this time and then to expand on habitat particularly spawning habitat i got asked today from a customer uh is that uh what depths do i put spawning habitat in well if your pond goes up and down then in the springtime it's going to be different spawning habitat than it will be in the hot of this drought so putting that early season uh, spawning habitat in with you know, some geotextile fabric, some spawning habitat fabric, lay that down and then bring in some pea gravel or slightly bigger than pea gravel on there and, and getting some spawning habitats if you don't have that. And we've hit particular habitat scenarios on a podcast. I think it's 62 by Brian Grab, And then the first one, uh, podcast one, we talk about habitats themselves and uh, to expand on that on more of the details of what, what you need to do on building a spawning habitat and then also is, is and if you can get in there without hurting the existing pool of fish it's the perfect time especially on the upper end on a dam pond or along the edges of some existing ponds to reach out there you know with with a bucket if you can get every equipment and then remove some of those organics because yeah that's going to help you long-term it's making that pond back in and it's young. And then those high organics, uh, are not always that awesome for your pond over time. It's the way the pond ages and the way that mother nature really wants to get this lake or pond back wants to fill it in because what she has is time. And, um, and so getting a lot of these nutrients out during those, during these construction events is really, really important. Yeah, reservoir reservoir aging is a real thing. It happens to every reservoir. Every reservoir wants to go back to being dirt. So um, time is not your friend in terms of um, reservoir health. Uh, So just keep that in mind. That's right. Now, uh, also, which Troy will expand on a little more detail, is he put some habitat out out the the spawning habitats you want to put out too is it's also a good time to put some thicker habitats into which these forage base after they spawn 
have a place to go during the shallow, warmer areas, especially on the shoreline areas, which is littoral zones and and that sort of thing. So it's it's time to kind of do some work out there. Yeah, if you can do some renovations. Do renovations, add, if you want to add plants, especially emergent plants, it would be a great time. That soil is still going to be moist. So a lot of plants like uh, water willowweed, which is justicia americana, um, they can they can still survive and thrive in that moist, uh, that moist section of the soil. And then once the water comes back up, you have an established uh, plant base there, uh, which is yep. always good to have. So to expand on that, a lot of times you have turbidity. A lot of times this is done by surface energy hitting the shoreline, knocking the shoreline back into the pond, and then putting it in the water column. Even though it's not a high amount of energy, um, it can be doing that. And also, you over time, you know, wind just pitter-patting the shoreline is going to erode your shoreline, especially if you just have normal grasses along the edges, turf grasses, because they're in their root system is really small. So putting a... Uh, some plants in there we use them for shoreline stabilization during this but also fish habitat and it's natural and they're beautiful some of them are beautiful um you know expand on some plant species we like pickerel and we like uh some lizard tail and we like some irises um swamp irises that are native um yeah on that particular area and then always check your region for for which plant does well in that particular region so arrowheads no so the all that being said is maybe time to put some plants in there and and utilize that those areas that are that are nice and wet just make sure they're saturated when you when you plant them or not dry as well say yep roger so moving on and we need to we need to expand any more on the drought oh i want to i know what i had on my notes here is uh you say well well can I fill with a well? What are the advantages and disadvantages of filling with a well? And in this particular region where a lot of areas are flat, so the ponds are not gigantic, you know, it's all earth moving ponds. And so wells are pretty common on uh, topping off their, their water table when, uh, when this is, when this scenario is, I mean, when this is a, uh, getting a drought in Ohio, just 30 miles, well, 45, 60 miles to the east of me, there is a region that wells are not even, the wells are, well water is undrinkable. And sometimes they either got to fill the pond to get, because the, the, the water quality is so bad with gases and that sort of thing, sulfides, that they um, have to drink from the well and topping out the uh, ponds in those areas to degas them is important and they drink from their ponds like really a whole region 100 miles yep <laughs> every house has to have a pond and uh um so yeah it's a really interesting place to to travel that being said is filling your pond with a well does some good things and that can do some bad things. So first thing is if you're filling from a well, I take your water quality and particularly we're looking at nutrients. I've seen well water have high phosphorus and I've seen well water have high nitrogen. Sure. So getting a test on that is very simple. Send it to a surface water lab and uh, not a wastewater. And in some place that you do, if you pay 10 or $15, you probably won't get a good sample on it. So plan on spending a couple hundred bucks just to send that out to a lab and look at your alkalinity, which is how much calcium is coming out, your iron, nitrogen, total nitrogen. Uh, well, there's three types of nitrogen, nitrate, nitrite, and total nitrogen. And then I would look at total phosphorus on those scenarios. So that's the water column that I would run off that well. And so when you pump that wild water in the reason i'm looking at calcium is it's because it's true alkalinity uh alkalinity is wonderful for ponds um small fish get their um calcium from the water column and as they grow bigger they get it from the food that they eat which gets it from the water column <laughs> so the long story short is that 
you're increasing everything that is bottom of the food chain, maybe crustacean, small fish, or zooplankton have an exoskeleton and, and the abundance of them that need high calcium. This is why ponds that are in the southeast, Georgia red clay, uh, aren't as productive when you have low alkalinity is because they're just things that can't grow on there, uh, on that. So the next thing is iron. And why do I look at iron? Is iron is always an interesting fact because iron in a oxidative state, which with Troy mentioned earlier with the aeration. And so if it has oxygen present, is a phosphorus binder and can bind nutrients. This is good and this is bad depending on where your lake is, but majority of the time good because ponds age. And the and as an oxidative state, you may have a, a natural binding scenario in it. Now, that all being said is I have, myself, have 22 hatchery ponds and I turned on a well, left it for two days and came back my fish were dead. Is that... And I also put my hand in a water column and I, water temperature was 85, which had 85 degree algae and bacteria in it. That is natural. And then I turned it within three days, 20 degrees to a 65 degree, which crashed the whole system. Things decomposed and all my smallmouth bass uh, were on, sword line, on the shoreline this, trying this, to. This sounds, like a rookie, this sounds like a rookie mistake to me. Oh, I got lots of rookie mistakes. Hey, uh, what is the best best learning is through experience, but also the most expensive? And I'll tell uh, you, I'll tell you one that could have been real expensive that I did yesterday. It was horrible. So the uh, hold hold up on that. Now let me finish this thought, and then we'll roll it over. The so what happened is that crashed that system by adding too much well water over time. Also, another scenario is a lot of people want to don't want the well to leave rust on their shoreline, so they'll put the well hose into the pond. That is also a negative. You want yeah. to, a lot of times you have sulfide gases, CO2, and other gases you don't even think about in the well water. Because well, it's and, well water, and well water has zero oxygen. Just zero. No oxygen in well water. Yep. And so well water is heavy. It takes all those gases and cool water down to the bottom, getting the surface at the bottom. It stratifies your pond, basically. And then the cold water on bottom, uh, becomes a problem not first day but after two weeks you have three foot of now cool water on the bottom and you get turnover events very rapidly if that is so if you are using a well then degas your well um, the best way we've done this is run it through like where you're staging your well run it through a three inch pipe open pipe at one end and then let it let this three inch pipe run to your well underground of course and into your pond if you don't want to see it. But when you drop it into the three-inch pipe, open pipe, man, when you drop it straight in, it hits the bottom of that elbow and agitates and then agitates itself, degassing itself as it rolls down underground in the three-inch pipe and then percolates out into the pond. And it's a great way to to do degassing without being aesthetic and leaving you know, red all on the shoreline and your rocks and great way. It's also shoot it up like a fountain and waterfalls and cook it in your waterfalls, but make sure you degas that, that well. Yeah, that's right. All right. The experience, what'd you do yesterday? That was, I drove, I, I pulled a brand new uh, mule uh, on a, a bumper trailer, uh, 50 miles. Uh, and it had a two and five sixteenths hitch, and I put it on a two inch ball. <laughs> so I drove fifty miles uh, with a trailer that could have popped on anywhere. Yeah, and I realized that when I went to back the mule off of the trailer, because then the um, the trailer popped off the ball. So, oh, yeah, it could have done that on the interstate. Would have been horrible. Would have been disastrous, to be honest with you. Cause I was running 75. So. <laughs> I've done it. Hey, check your hitch, check your ball people. Make sure you got the right size for the right. Yeah. Size. I got, I got a fish trailer that uh, bumps up to a bigger, bigger trailer size. And, and we started to get down the road and it was just popping a lot. Went back there and looked and the rookie, I was like, I don't understand what's going on. And then the rookie's like, I think you got the wrong size ball on here. Yeah, I was like, "Well, you just earned your pay today." <laughs> that's a that's like, a yeah, bad, right. bad that's a bad, bad deal. Yeah, 
So, hey, we talked about droughts pretty thoroughly. We're going to move on to floods unless you got something else to add. Nope. Let's do it. We talked about famine. Now we're talking about feast. Seems like Texas either pours 12 inches or doesn't rain at all. Yep. And what can you do? What have you seen? You're getting it. Is there anything in preparation you can do knowing that you're going to have a flood? You mean like the pond is built and you're sitting there looking at it and you're like, all right, it's fixing to rain for days. Yep. Or like, for instance, I was also hitting it. Let's just start at initial pond design, you know, initial pond and, design. Uh, yeah. There, Mike Otto said, and I hope I can get this. He's a fantastic pond builder, legacy pond builder. He said, you need to prepare for a drought. And if you haven't got a flood, you'll get one. And I just butchered his saying. But my point being is that you are going to get in the existence of that pond a drought and floods. And, and when you do the initial design, you need to do what? I mean, for me, it's pretty simple. One is if you have the primary spillway, uh, your primary, you, you need, well, first of all, you need to have an engineer determine what your 50 year, 100 year, 500 year flood events will be, how much volume that is. It's going to come through your pond. Now, in Middle Tennessee, for example, we have had two 500-year floods in a 10-year period of time um, in part of Middle Tennessee. So they're no longer 500-year flood events, best I can tell. They're 10-year flood events. <laughs> um, but you need someone to tell you what the volume of water is for a 50, 100-year, or 500-year flood, and then have that same person tell you whether or not your primary spillway, which is typically a pipe, or a siphon drain. I prefer a siphon drain if you have a primary spillway. I don't like pipes that go to the bottom of a lake. And there are people that will give me kickback on that, but I just don't like them. Um, and they're they're not necessary. So your primary spillway will need to be sized for whatever flood event your engineer tells you. That I mean, up to that flood event. If they say, all right, your primary spillway is going to hold everything up to a 100-year flood event, then you need to make sure that it's sized that way. Now, when you get to that 100-year flood event, you need to make sure that your emergency spillway, which is the one that is cut in the dam, is a very, very good, sturdy, uh, wide, flat spillway. It needs to be, in my opinion, it needs to be a really, really good turf grass spillway. I don't like concrete. I don't like riprap. I just like a really, really good turf spillway that will direct the water away from the back of your dam so you don't erode the back of your dam. Uh, and it needs to be wide and flat and hold that water that would be above and beyond the 100-year flood mark. Uh, and if you do that, then you should have great pond longevity. But if you design the primary spillway incorrectly or you design a poorly constructed emergency spillway, um, during those flood events, you're going to have erosion and potentially breaches in that dam that you, that you don't want to see. So for me, I mean, that's really where I, when somebody says what I need to do to prepare for a flood, that's where I lean is always, uh, dam, I guess, dam safety and lake safety. That's right. Just, yeah, just expand on that is that basically a flood simply, simply is, you got a lot more water than that pond can hold, so you need to remove it safely without the integrity of losing integrity of the pond and life in the pond and also the uh, integrity of your dam if you have one. I like siphon drains for a couple different reasons. One, they pump a ton of water uh, and also are pumping from the lower strata. It's usually um, those, some of the worst water especially if you do not, if you're on air a remote site and you don't have bottom-based aeration systems. Yeah, so a couple of so, things there. So if you're if you're aerating, you're moving that water so you don't have what we would consider to be stagnant water on the bottom uh, underneath the thermocline. <clears throat> but still, if you if you have a siphon drain, make sure that siphon drain or a standpipe, whichever one you do, pulls water from as deep in the water column as you, as you can, I would say. In a 15-foot lake, I would want to be pulling water from 12 or 13 feet deep um, when, those, right. when, when those drains are running. 
Yep. Also, uh, siphon drain. I can drain my pond if I want to do work. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you can also start your siphon drain knowing if you're absolutely knowing a hurricane's coming um, <clears throat> or a, a dramatic rain event. You can start that siphon drain and bleed that pond down, uh, understanding that you're going to get a lot of pool flooding into that particular pond. The uh, Also with siphon drains, um, well, I'll hit on bottom-based area systems. If you properly mix size your bottom base, I'm seeing more and more of these cheap, me too, cheap aeration systems coming out that are uh, got as much air as a fart, and they say they'll destratify you know ten acres, and, and they, they not, won't. Not yeah. So if it's cheap, it probably it's cheap for a reason. And listen, and I haven't get, even got. I've even gone deal. to the. I've even gone to the point on systems that I install when I have them designed by the manufacturer. Um, I tell them to oversize every one that I do. Um, I want there to be too many airheads so that I don't have to question it. And I want the compressor to be size larger than what they initially recommend. If they send me something that requires um, one three-quarter horse pump, I'll tell them to send me two. I'll build the system bigger, even though it's going to be an extra, I don't know, if it's an extra $1,500, whatever. Uh, I, I always size my systems larger for that for that reason. I don't even want there to be a question that I've, I'm turning enough water in that pond or lake. That's right. It gives you a lot of flexibility. Again, I hate to say it, but we've done so many of these. There is an aeration uh, talk. We just talked about bottom-based aeration systems, but I did want to, uh, and you can go back to get the details on that uh, all day long. And yeah, I mean, we do an hour and a half of, of pure just talk about bottom-based aeration systems. So now the other things, the other things that happen during big flood events is you can get extreme nutrient loading um, from depending on the surrounding soils. Well, you can pause get, on pause on that. I want to expand on. I, that. I never ever ever tells you to pause on a, a thought process. That hurts you my pause. heart a little bit. Yeah. Hey, pause on that because I want to expand on, on on what you said earlier, the brilliance that you brought to the table earlier. What about you sizing design. the ball sizing the ball correctly for a for a trailer? <laughs> yeah. No, the uh on the emergency spillway and on the correct sizing of your of your pipes. So siphon drains I like. Uh a lot of places way up north can't use siphon drains because the uh, suction side will sometimes freeze the hole on top and then the siphon won't turn off. So look in your region if you can build those for sure. Uh, but if you can't, uh, putting a pipe through there is correctly sized is important or oversized. And then your emergency spillway, which I'll hit on Troy, is you want to get that amount of water that's coming into that lake away from your dam as fast as fast as you can one is you don't want it to have a sharp decline on the back of your dam that's going to increase velocity and then when it does it's going to take sediment with it so two is you need a smoke slowly uh non i guess slope on the back end and then the biggest mistake i see a lot of times and i know you've seen it is that the emergency spillway they want to wrap it back around and put it in the trench that your emergency spillway was pumping into so now the, the water has to turn on the back end of your dam. Don't ever do that. Get that water away. And so, therefore, um, you don't have any erosion issues. I like, and then also, you need to look at, make sure and show that pond designer that that uh, emergency spillway, you need to look at its level and all throughout that. And just in having one inch at 15 feet is a tremendous amount of water. Uh, flowing over the emergency spillway. I mean, if a, a weir of one inch, 15 feet wide is thousands of gallons. So uh, making sure that he is just targeted on that emergency spillway on his leveling is very important. Now, floods and nutrients, hand it over. You sure? You ready yeah, now? I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I may be a little bit crazy, but. Uh, um, yeah, so listen, bad things about floods. Um, extreme amounts of nutrient loading, which can create rapid um, blooms and either, I mean, phytoplankton or cyanobacteria. 
Um, large amounts of sediment deposits um, during flooding, which will obviously create uh, mucky environments, shallow environments. So um, anything you can do to prevent that is good. If you have built something next to a creek that could potentially flood into your pond, it's always best to try Ooh. to get that, that levee size. It's always best to try to get that side of the levee that is next to the creek high enough that that creek can never, ever, ever, or that river get into your, uh, your lake or pond. Uh, it's going to deposit trash fish. It's going to pull some of your fish out. Uh, and you're just going to have a headache of a scenario in terms of ongoing management. We see this a ton in Mississippi, uh, in the Delta areas where the Mississippi river has the ability to get in some of these old oxbows and lagoons. And man, you wind up with pickerel and gar and bowfin or shoe pick, whatever you want to call them, grinnel, um, gizzard shad, Asian carp. I mean, you just name what could come out of the Tennessee river and they're going to be in the, I mean, out of the Mississippi river, they're going to be in there. So, uh, building a levee so that rivers and creeks cannot get into listen to them dogs barking dead cat. I, I, I thought they were parrots they're about the size of a parrot um, <laughs> so you just wind up with a lot of trash fish that you can no longer uh, it makes it very very difficult to have a um, a good management strategy on a pond or a lake so those are you know really kind of when i think about flood events uh, the, the four things you can take away is that you're likely, if it's not built right, to have a, a dam breach. You're going to have large deposits of um, nutrients, large sediment deposits, and the potential for a river or a creek to deposit trash fish uh, in your lake. That's, that was pretty good. No, I think it was really good, Matt, but you can say pretty good all you want to. <laughs> nutrients. So know where your water's coming from coming into your lake prepare for if you have an agricultural area that is 3,000 acres above it you may want to have a nutrient sediment pond yeah above your pond or lake capture that sediments and the nutrients most nutrients are not brought in with nutrients or meaning what do you mean by the water most nutrients are brought in by particulated phosphorus, meaning attached to the sediment as it's brought in and then deposits itself and falls off the sediment as it slows down into your pond. So the uh, so capturing a lot of that sediment, not only is it filling your pond in, it's giving it a glurg of, of nutrients, particularly phosphorus, and you could have some problems out there. You know you're getting a flood and you got a lot of nutrients in there, then you, it's usually in the spring and fall, which is a great time for nutrient abatement. So get ahead of the game before it goes somewhere where you can't control it, like like an HAB. Uh, and so try to target that on that scenario. Also, I'm back to the watershed. I didn't hit it on there very well, but but examine it and do the best you can. We've done riprap on flowing water coming into it and have water perk through a riprap, but it can don't. Uh, you get your elevation correctly. You want it to be at least a foot below your, your drain pipe um, as it slows. And you don't want to back up water on somebody else's property and scenario. Um, we did berm and swale before. I mean, we put uh, rock. And so we basically catered up, made a pond and slowly let it perk through a, a number two stone or, or even some sand in the south of Florida, which we worked on. Um, trying to capture if i could slow that water for four even to five hours it, it drops out 50 percent of its particulate so something to think about on that scenario sometimes floods are just so big that you just got to get out of the way i understand that the question is do i lose a lot of my fish yes you lose some fish but a lot of times the fish know it's a big event and they're hunkering down you say well i lost all my fish because there's a bunch of bluegill on the back side of the dam yeah usually some smaller bluegill along shoreline well you'll lose some of them i don't see unless it hits during a spawn where fish were really moving and love that moving water do we see a ton of fish moving out of the out of the lake when we come now back with that being it. said if you if you have grass carp, uh they yeah. they are a flow they are a flow loving fish so if you have a lake where water moves through it constantly or you're going to have a high flood event you're better to have they make there are some very simple barriers you can put at your spillway that will keep those carp from leaving. 
uh, if you yep, if you don't want to believe. Yep. Just be careful not to backflow and have other problems if that strainer gets clogged. So using that yeah. correct strainer on that scenario, I will put that. But yes, you're exactly right. Grass carpet uh, loose. And if you're prone for flooded and by a creek, by all means, I don't think grass carp are your means of vegetation control anyway, because you're not doing yourself any uh, favors and you're not doing, you know, uh, if they're going out into the wild, they're not helping everybody else on, on that scenario. So the, uh, uh, if you're prone for flooding, you know, every other year, a year, um, then I would be a little bit hesitant on being able to stock that property for grass carp anyway good point i will say this too um which is a funny event i'll wrap it up with this funny story unless you want to hit on anything else no i'm good this did I, happen I just, to me I, this I, week. i've really i've really enjoyed hearing you talk the majority of the time today <laughs> you usually do i mean i've seen you i've seen you've been writing things down all the way through the uh I will say this, and this is a funny story that happened to me this week, and you reminded me of it when you said Oxbow Lake. There is a customer of mine building a 30-acre lake, and I've uh, got permits, but a dam breached, creek went through it, um, and then he put the he wanted to put the creek back in its original banks and dam it up again, but it took a couple years to get the permits and this, that, and another. Well, anyway, the creek has been flowing during that time and depositing all the craziness that creeks do, all the rough fish and everything else. So he dammed it up, and now he has five acres at the bottom of this. And we went in there with a shocking boat the other day. And it was the funnest day ever. I mean, thousand pounds of rough fish to got back down there. Quill back. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you this. Yeah, and listen, it's really cool sometimes to do those lakes. We have one in Georgia we're working on now, and we're removing a bunch of trash fish and it's just really fun sometimes to see the types of fish uh, yes. that you typically don't see in a ponder lake. I mean, this, this thing has like chain pickerel, bowfin. I mean, just all kinds of cool fish we typically don't get to play with. So, um, but and so well, we had some people, some people are also asking Matt, what is an oxbow? An oxbow is a natural uh, lake that used to be part of a river. Uh, and the river changed its direction of flow and left a standing pool of water there. And they are typically semicircle shaped because they are they were in the bend of a river at some point. And uh, that is no longer the case. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes they're man-made. So you can get oxbows with gravel quarries and that because gravel is usually right there next to. And that's this in this case, that's what happened on this particular lake. But anyway, we got in there, quill back thousand pounds. It was, this boat was just shocking scaly fish like crazy. Uh, we didn't have a great amount of clarity, but then all of a sudden we got into Asian carp. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the greatest redneck sport. I invented the greatest redneck sport ever. It has to do with Asian carp and a shock boat and a 12 gauge shotgun. Uh, and it is. Now you gotta be careful. You could, uh, not saying uh, it's happened, but you could accidentally shoot the electrode off the front of your boat if you're not careful. Um, <laughs> but when they when they fly, because they they're typically in very conductive water, like high conductivity waters, and they can feel it for like yards and yards and yards in front of the boat, and they just jump everywhere. But when I've done it, we've been able to herd them towards the bank without shocking, and then when we get close to the bank, we hit the pedal. And it looks like a rainbow of fish just jumping. And you yep. start picking them. Take that 12-gauge and start firing away, buddy. It's a good removal technique. <laughs> well, we didn't use a 12-gauge, but we would have some jumpers, and then we'd turn the boat because they would jump out of your field, right? That's their way of escape. Jump, get the hell out of there so they can jump. I mean, you got fish jumping 15 feet in the air. I mean, it is yeah, like, it's impressive. like dolphins. It, yeah. is an, it is impressive feat seeing them come up seen a 20 pound fish jump like that well anyway then when you jump up you got about four to five seconds before they hit the ground and if you catch them between your booms so if you turn the boat fast enough you can catch them in the booms and it'll shock them out when they yeah. land and uh so we started doing that um on that scenario so that was pretty interesting but uh 
in Illinois, they're calling them Kopi now. Do you hear about this? And they're spending six million dollars advertising because they're actually good eating fish. Food to so the fish, customer. Yeah. Uh, great guy, great guy. Uh, the customer wanted all the Asian carp because one, he, he felt responsible if he's going to do the removal, he's going to eat it. So he has got his tailgate down and just whipping out through these. And we ended up getting about a hundred pounds of this blaze out of it. They are, they are a nasty fish though. Boy, no slime, slimy, slimy. I mean, no, just physically. Physically, they're odd looking. Yes. Phys- and they're, yes. they're very, they're very nasty, slimy. I'm not saying their meat's nasty. I'm saying the fish on the outside. <clears throat> right. Well, he no played it and he's showing me and it's like, looks like bass, white. You know, just got a little bit of color and everything else. It's like, well, I'm like you. I'm very skeptical and dubious. So I'm like, all right, whatever. And anyway, we roll this pig. I'm talking King Kong Asian carp, 50 some pounds. (laughs) And uh, and come up to the edge. And then my tech guy picked it up. He's throwing it to this guy to the shoreline so he can get it. But it hits the shoreline and springs back. And my customer wanted that fish so bad, he dove in after it. Oh you just goodness. saw his hat come up. He slimed almost right underneath the boat and grabs it, floating, things everywhere. I've never seen anything. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what do I do? Am I good? Is this guy okay? Is he gone? And he comes up, and he misses the fish, but just comes up on the other side, and we was able to get a gaff on But came up, gave it his all. Like, that's and uh to get this fish back into the boat i was like i've never seen i had more respect to that customer diving in he had his phone in his pocket and everything Unreal. it wasn't ruined but but uh but i was like holy moly and he came up and he was like oh i missed that time gun and that we end up getting him so we got him back and he got a play at him but the but i was like i have never seen the tenacity yeah, I'm not jumping all around. Jumping. I'd jump in after a big bass if I had to, but I wouldn't jump. <laughs> I wouldn't jump in off after an Asian carp. But anyway, he played those bad boys, and they were also delicious. That's what he said. He says he you haven't tried. He it, you haven't it. tried it yet. I haven't tried it. Let's wrap it up. You ready? Yeah. This podcast, Sitting Dockside, is brought to you by. Private Water Natural Resource Association, a nonprofit built just to educate private pond and lake owners on water quality and fisheries and all of that good stuff. There's videos, there's places to read, and there's a community built right into that website. So if you want to learn more, jump to pwnra.org and click. And by all means, make sure that this continues podcast education video become a member if nothing else there's tons of platforms youtube facebook just hit like send a comment we appreciate everything you can do here pwnra